Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, Lene Erickson. Lene is the senior vice president for the social policy and politics program at Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. Lene, welcome back. It's good to see you. Thanks. Nowhere I'd rather be. Also returning to the roundup is the fantastic Molly McHugh. Molly is a writer and researcher of Russian influence and information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, among many other publications. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and the lead author of a newsletter called greatpower.us. Molly, it's great to see you again. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me back. Happy to do it. On this week's roundup, Good takes and bad takes on Tuesday night's election results and how to tell the difference. How the UN Climate Change Conference will impact the US and the globe. Recent news about China and the creation of their digital currency. And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we'll talk about Facebook's decision to end their facial recognition program and some bigger, longer-term concerns about that space. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get the plus segment and join our community. Let's dig in. All eyes were on just a handful of big elections on Tuesday, from the governor's races in Virginia and New Jersey to the mayoral races in New York, Boston, and Atlanta. The biggest news story of the day, however, Republican Glenn Youngkin defeated Terry McAuliffe to become the governor-elect in Virginia. There are going to be, and have already been, a lot of different stakeholders trying to say why Youngkin won and what that should mean for candidates and legislators in both parties. Because of how Youngkin tried to walk a fine line of distancing himself from Trump and staying close enough to Trump to keep Trump's supporters on his side, we knew going into the election that if Youngkin won, the two factions of the Republican Party would claim credit for it. We even saw Trump take credit for Youngkin's win on Wednesday morning. Let's take a listen to that. Without MAGA, he, did, he would have lost by 15 points. Yep. More. Yep. I think more than that. I mean, MAGA turned out and then uh, we got up so, so much that we had even, you know, numbers comparable to mine. And they said, oh, he's more popular. Instead of giving us credit, they start saying, oh, he's more popular than Trump. You know, it's unbelievable. I don't believe that we lost it. I don't believe we lost Virginia. They cheat on elections more than anybody, maybe in the world. OK, you want to know the truth. We're like a third world country when it comes to elections. I know, I know, I know. Hold on. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy became the first Democrat to get reelected in the Garden State since 1977, just a couple of months after the first Star Wars movie hit theaters. He narrowly beat out Republican challenger Jack Chitterelli. This is actually another break in a pattern since George H.W. Bush took office in every year that a new president has taken office. That president's party has lost the governor's races in Virginia and New Jersey. George H.W. Bush, Clinton, George W. Bush, Obama, and Trump all saw their parties lose both the Virginia and New Jersey races. So Democrats have also lost control of the Virginia House of Delegates. Republicans gained enough seats to be at least uh, at a 50-50 split with several key races too close to call. So we're going to see a million different hot takes on what these elections mean for the midterms and about how people are feeling. What have you both seen so far? How do you think the Beltway media and politicians are going to interpret these results? Um, Lene, why don't you, why don't we start with you? What's the worst take? What's the best take? And what's your take so far? 
I mean, I think the worst take is that it's moderates' fault. Uh, I saw a big piece today that said, you know, moderate Democrats are at fault for this. Uh, Terry McAuliffe was a moderate. We should have nominated, you know, Bernie Sanders for uh, Virginia governor, and that would have solved our problem. And the reason that's a really bad take is that McAuliffe actually won 200,000 more votes than Northam did in 2017 in a banner Democratic year. So it wasn't that he didn't turn people out. It wasn't that people weren't excited about Terry McAuliffe or uh, excited about not voting for Glenn Youngkin. Uh, he turned his folks out, but he just didn't turn them out as much as Youngkin did. So I think that that's my worst take. I think the okay. best take is it's uh, it's all about the president's approval rating. You know, more and more we see uh, the president's approval rating so closely linked to down ballot results. And um, and if you win Virginia by 10 points and then your approval rating is minus eight, uh, you aren't going to be able to win as a Democrat. You, you are tied to Joe Biden. And I think that really just shows Democrats how much their job before next November is to get Biden's numbers up. It's not to distance from Joe Biden. It is to help him get his numbers up, because if they do not, they will not be reelected. All right. That's the bad take. That's the best take. Uh, what's your take? <laughs> I mean, my take is that this is always what happens. It always happens. Like the American people are like, oh, I want this and then I want that. And this is, you know, part of the pattern. It would have been really crazy if it wasn't part of the pattern, right? I mean, it, it would have defied uh, history if Democrats actually won that state. So I think we overinterpret um, you know, the the blue shift in Virginia to our peril. And we need to recognize that potentially, you know, the Virginia suburban voters who Trump lost last time around went for Yunkin this time. He, he won 53% when Biden won 53% in the suburbs last time around. This is not a blue state. It goes back and forth based on who's in the White House. And we saw that happen yet again this year. It's almost as if voters tend to vote against the party in power in off your elections. <laughs> Call me crazy. It's almost as if they go back and forth because they're not super into either. Yeah. Molly, um, to the extent that you've been watching this from where you sit now, uh, what's your take? And also, what's the difference between the way the rest of the world is watching this election to the extent that they are with all the other global news this week and the way Americans are fixated on it? Um, you know, it's not, it's actually not so different. And I think we all forget, uh, we as Americans, uh, as we, as we sit in America land, um, how much everybody watches all of our stuff, especially elections, uh, the over-interpretation of every sway in the American political system, especially in the last, uh, sort of five, six years. Um, so, you know, there are articles, uh, in the UK papers about, what's happening in U.S. domestic politics and what it means for Biden that, that uh, you know, the state of Virginia was won by Republicans, um, which is always really funny to me to see, plus the, the takes of foreigners on, on what all this means and the prognostications of power. But I think you saw a lot of this in Biden's um, trip overseas this past week uh, and his meetings with the G20, his meetings um, in Scotland on climate issues. Um, where he's there with these big promises, you know, we're going to bring the $555 billion for climate things. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, sure. But they're not really sure that he can do that. 
um, because they see this paralysis in American politics. And for most people out here uh, who, who still rely incredibly on a strong United States to be the backbone of our security architecture, our economic architecture in the world, uh, of sanity, of reason, of negotiations, of uh, you know, chairing things like climate summits to make sure everyone shows up and behaves. There's a lot of concern that the permanent fracture and partisanship in American politics to the point of complete bananas cuckoo bird levels in terms of how most people out here look at it um, will hurt the rest of the world because we're not showing up the way that we used to uh, and with the same clout and unity that we used to. Um, and even within his own party, the lack of support for the president's agenda um, is something that people here see and wonder what that means for them. Um, and so it's not about us. It's about what it means for them. You know, are we going to show up if we need or if they need us? Um, are we going to help solve these economic and energy crises that, that um, in many respects, Europe is, is staring down the barrel of? Um, what are we bringing to the table? And there's a lot of questions about all of that. So I think, um, you know, I agree with, with what, um, Lenny said, but, um, uh, for me, what I, like the thing that I see is just Americans are so desperately in this mode of, it is all normal. It is all fine. It is fine. Now there is no existential threat. No country wants to live in the idea of an existential threat for more than like, a few months. I mean, Americans couldn't even do a year of the pandemic, right? And then it was like, there's no virus, like we're all out at the beach now. Um, and and I think there's just this belief that, you know, this Jumpkin guy's okay. You know, like he, he wears a fleece vest, he, he goes to the barbecues, like, you know, he's trying not to be so Trumpy, like it'll be all right. And then there's this idea of balancing power and, you know, letting people in from the other side and we can't have everyone from maybe these guys will be better, like who really knows? that Americans always do in politics, but I just think there's no focus anymore in the United States on the real threats to our power in the world, uh, to our democracy, um, that are persistent and ongoing, um, that we're just ignoring. Like, nobody is really giving them the time of day, and I'm not sure why we have those blinders on to the extent that we do, and why people who have the ability to do something about that um, are are not more invested in that, but I'm just having a really hard time looking at everything in front of us and sort of making it make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> and Molly, to your point, just to add to that, you know, I think there um, uh, the number of people that said the pandemic was a major concern in Virginia was like 12 percent or so in most polls. Like they are over it. They're like ready to move on to the economy. Um, they they don't care about the pandemic anymore. And so it was inflation and, um, you know, the fact that when I filled up my gas tank in Richmond the other day, it cost me $57 and that didn't feel good. Um, and so they, they want to move on to the next and they're like, all right, maybe Glenn Yen can, can fix that. Well, we know he certainly can't, but, uh, but they, you know, they weren't satisfied with, with what they were seeing in front of them and they're hiding the rest of the big issues that we, um, know are, are looming out there. Yeah. Lenate. Yeah, I'll just okay. say I had to go to a friend's house in rural northern Virginia. So the part that's not so red, but reddish, uh, the weekend before I left to come out to, to London. Um, and it was like miles of Yunkin signs in yeah. places that are not normally so signy. So I was not really that surprised at the results. I, I still have all those questions about like, 
why opinion research in the United States doesn't seem to capture American voters the way that we want it to anymore. And I don't think that's a left or a right advantage. It just seems like there's something that's not working and we need to figure that out on all the other issues too. But boy, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I have no answer for that. That's Well, I think part of one, one big part of the answer to that is the, is the survey response bias, which a lot of, you know, statisticians and, and, and survey professionals have noted is a growing concern. It's not going away. It's getting actually worse. Um, and it's actually something we should spend some time on. Um, it's, it's why, it's why polling tends to be so bad these days. Lene, there's one other significant election result that I wanted to ask you about, which is, uh, what happened in Minneapolis. So there was this ballot measure, uh, that would have, um, that would have replaced the Minneapolis police department with a new department of public safety, uh, which would have included police officers. Um, and it failed. 56% uh, rejected that plan. And it was a pretty wide margin. I don't want to say 10 points, but it was close. Um, and your home state, uh, this is obviously the city uh, that, that experienced the sort of, it was ground zero for George Floyd and the protests. And how did you read that result? I mean, I think that result is uh, an indication of what we learned in 2020, which is that defund the police is not popular. People do not like that idea. Do they like the idea of um, police reforms and, you know, ending no-knock warrants and chokeholds and all those other things? Training for police, yes. Do they like the idea of abolishing the police? No. And even in a super blue city like Minneapolis, um, where we see, you know, um, really, really lefty politicians be elected like Ilhan Omar, we we see voters fundamentally rejecting the idea of not having a police department or, um, you know, completely rethinking what law enforcement looks like. Um, and so I think Democrats have learned that lesson um, from 2020, at least uh, the, the ones who felt that that really hurt them in their down ballot races. Um, and, you know, I, for one, am glad that this um, ballot initiative did not pass because even though I think we need massive reforms and we need the, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act at the federal level, it was not a good um, uh, framework to be putting forth to have those reform discussions. It was, um, you know, it, it fundamentally scared people and made them think we were saying, you know, we're going to make your communities less safe. And the fact that that the mayor uh, won re-election there and he opposed the initiative um, really shows you that the even in blue places, you know, Eric Adams won as well on Tuesday. And he was the one that said, no, don't defund the police. Um, even in really blue places, defund the police is not popular. And we really need to think about framing our discussion around the reforms that we need, not slogans that make them sound crazy. Yeah. You know, uh, I think all of that is right. I also, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I think about a year ago, you know, when, when this ballot measure first, you know, was conceived, support for it was actually very, very popular. And so I think this sort of speaks to a, a sort of feature, not a bug of our system, which is that you can't take a poll one day and change everything tomorrow, change everything the next day. Like we have a system that sort of, it, it, it takes time to move, to make big major changes. And um, I, and I wonder what happened between then and now. I think people forget, 
You know, I, first of all, um, I work on things like gun safety and the feature, not a bug that you just described is the opposite there. Because at this point, after a mass shooting, the, um, you know, the propensity for remembering that that happened uh, gets shorter and shorter. It's like, uh, it's like now it's like days and we've moved on. So the, the idea that, you know, as we did after Sandy Hook, that we're going to spend four or five months talking about what, what we need to do to keep children safe in schools. Now it's down to 48 hours. And we can't move anything in 48 hours. So it's very frustrating. Um, But I also think that the Republicans at that point were on board with a bunch of policing reforms. You know, Um, I was just reminded yesterday that Donald Trump signed an executive order that was um, encouraging banning chokeholds and encouraging um, a lot of this training. But now they've realized that with the uptick in murder last year, um, that they can turn this into a political issue. And so, you know, Cory Booker and Tim Scott were working on a compromise bill. Democrats went way, way, way to the middle on this compromise bill to try to meet the Republicans. And they weren't standing there anymore. They were gone because they know that next year they're going to try to use the increase in crime to scare people and scare them out of voting for Democrats. We've got so much to get to, and this is by no means a full and complete dissection of of all of those results around the country. Um, More on that on Politicology soon, but I want to move on to our next segment, which is this climate summit. This week, nearly 120 world leaders gathered in Glasgow to address the climate change crisis at the United Nations Global Climate Summit. This came after a G20 summit where leaders couldn't agree on some key targets, like a firm deadline for the end of coal power. While the talks are still underway as of recording, there have been some big takeaways so far. More than 100 leaders representing 85% of the world's forests agreed to end deforestation by 2030, including Brazil, which is home to the Amazon rainforest, one of our most crucial natural defenses against climate change. India's prime minister pledged that his country will become carbon neutral by 2070. The Biden administration also announced new rules on methane emissions. It will push oil and gas companies to more accurately detect, monitor, and repair methane leaks from wells, pipelines, and other equipment. The EPA estimates the rule will cut 41 million tons of methane emissions from 2023 to 2035. That's more than the total carbon dioxide emitted from all U.S. passenger cars and commercial planes in 2019. A senior administration official told reporters that the new rule would cover about 75% of all methane emissions in the U.S., and they also announced a global methane pledge that aims to slash emissions by nearly 30% by 2030. So how are you seeing Biden uh, be able to work with other world leaders on the issue of climate? And it's important to note that neither Putin nor Xi Jinping attended the U.N. talks, uh, which Biden criticized them for. What's it going to mean that they're not part of this process? On Russia and China specifically, I think it's a really interesting uh, development that they just ghosted all of these things because they didn't show up the G20. They didn't show up for the climate summit. Um, I think what it shows is they're kind of done with the kabuki of we're at the table. We care what you think. Everybody else in the global power structures Um, they don't think they need it anymore because they think we're weakened to the point where whatever we're going to organize without them is like, nah, whatever, like who really cares? I don't think it's good that they weren't there, um, uh, because of what it signals in every other arena. 
Um, and we're really not wrapping our heads around this. I mean, it's, it's been, you know, a, a year since the U.S. election, uh, just about or almost exactly, or I can't even remember what date at this point, but uh, I don't know what year it is anymore. Um, it's been just about a year since the U.S. election. Um, and, uh, you know, for that year, what the Biden team was focusing on in terms of foreign policy uh, was a lot of climate. Um, a lot of we need to work with Russia and China on things like climate, like this was going to be the reason that we're doing all of these new engagement strategies with them. Uh, and once again, that has shown to be a complete effing waste of time. Excuse my my reduced <laughs> language there, um, as it did before. And like, you know, this is what John Kerry is doing full time. And it's just a waste of time. And I don't know if we're going to waste the next three years on this, as we did in the in the first uh, term of the Obama administration, like how long are we going to do? Oh, but it's so important that we talk to Russia and China and get them at the table when all they're trying to do is stab us in the eye anytime we're not paying attention. Um, but we really need to understand that Russia and China are viewing the rules and the, the framework of the world order very differently than the rest of us do now. Um, and I don't mean this in an apocalyptic, like, get the tanks to the yeah. front lines way, but we need to be much smarter about what our power is, how we are mobilizing it, how we are using it in every realm, financial, you know, cultural, diplomatic, uh, how we are using our allies, uh, coming together with our allies in all of those realms against these two uh, very different, you know, very unequal superpowers that have a very different vision for what the future is than the rest of us. Um, and if we can't sort of get our game together on that now, yeah. like not in 10 years, not after two more American presidents decide to work with Russia and China for a while and then get stabbed in the eye, but now we're going to be facing a very difficult rest of the century. Um, so I think this was a really interesting turning point that even with, once again, the positive signaling from a new American administration hey guys, come to the party. We want to be your friends. Like, let's figure out how we can, we're never going to be allies, but we can be partners. Like, how do we work this out? And the answer this time was basically a double middle finger. Um, and I hope that message is sinking in because we really need to focus on the allies first strategy instead of like having totally dumb diplomatic blowups with France that now everybody is wasting tons of time on, including yeah. here in the UK, where it's like the war is about to start. If you're reading any of the newspapers, right? Like they're loving this. Brexit was right because France is so ridiculous, you know, subject line. Um, like we can't be doing this. What are we all doing? Like, do we even understand what we're looking at? Uh, and that's my great frustration right now. So I think on the climate summit, US leadership, great. Biden showing back up, great. U.S. not sounding like clowns because we're the only power in the world that's like, I don't know, is there climate change or not for the first time in years? Great. You know, all of that's very positive. But this whole like, what is the energy behind that? Do we actually understand what we're mobilizing for is a much bigger question that I think we really need to devote more time to answering. Okay. So with all that said, and first we should note for our listeners that you and I talked about the France thing uh, a couple of episodes back and, uh, and Biden looks like he successfully smoothed that over. They were like, yeah, sorry about that. We didn't handle that so well. And, and it was a non-apology apology, but whatever. I think everybody's sort of copacetic now. But um, 
Here's my follow-up question to you on all of this. Uh, and this is something that we've talked about before also, vis a be sort of working with autocracies and validating them uh, versus climate change interests, right? I'm looking at this, I'm looking at this beautiful graph from CNN that shows major methane makers from cows to coal mines uh, and where it's coming from, right? And if you look at this, the very top is Asia. And it doesn't include China, which is right below it. And the like the vast majority you can tell of of methane is coming from this region. And if we cannot work with these with these partners, if they are no longer allies, then what tools do we have at our disposal? And 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 sort of what are our options going forward? Because, you know, like it or not, that's where that's where a lot of this is coming from. And and sort of we we shoot ourselves in the foot, right? If all of our Western allies are working together to mitigate climate change, and yet the the some of the largest producers of methane gas driving greenhouse gases and and, and global warming is, you know, if they're not on board, then then what? I mean, it's the right question in every respect. And this has been the Republicans' argument in the United States for not participating in any of this stuff uh, from the get-go, even though their motivation for it is, of course, very different. Um, but this is always the argument, like, well, why shouldn't China and India have to follow the same rules the rest of us do? Like, it gives them an, an unfair advantage if they're still operating at, you know, 1940s levels of pollution, and we're here, like, trying to be all green and clean. Um, and, you know, it's it's obviously a, a reductionist way of looking at what is the truth. <laughs> but um, it's about creating a system where everybody feels, okay, it's not going to be exactly the same for everybody, right? Um, but everybody's participating, everybody's making commitments, and everybody can hold everybody accountable for meeting those commitments within reason and 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 then with certainty, right? And I think right now what everybody feels is basically everybody is trying to cheat. Um, and yes, the Europeans with their solar panels and their wind energy, but like that's an awful lot of gas you guys are are building into your system, uh, which is really polluty, especially when you're buying it from Russia, which is like super polluty and how they produce and ship gas, right? Like. So I think everybody has some hypocrisy in their green vision for their future. Um, and as long as we're discussing those things and sort of sharing it around, that's great. I think when we're talking about benchmarks that are in 2070, like, so what? Like, if we're talking about 2070 in 10 years, we've already missed the boat completely. Like, this is ridiculous. Um, and so, I, you know, it, it is about getting buy-in and making people feel everybody is moving in the same direction. Asia is a huge challenge on all of these issues uh, because of density of population, because of infrastructure, um, because of current uh, energy systems and how those were built and what they rely on and what all of that means. Um, uh, and, you know, China's not very transparent about anything <laughs> and, and, and we'll make commitments and then not meet them and there's nothing we can do about it. But I think where there's where there's potential and something we can really lean into especially not so much with Russia but with China is the economic potential of better energy right okay. uh, yes coal is cheap and dirty and all these things but um, there's great competition in green energy in uh, more efficient technologies in production of solar panels and all of these other things and China wants to compete there so I think that's an important um, an important way to sort of keep them in is they want access for all of their stuff and all of our markets, uh, even when it's built with Uyghur labor, which they're really big fans of forcing everyone to use. Um, so I think there's there's ways to kind of get everybody in. But um, 
I think we need to be there consistently. And I think everyone needs to feel that this isn't like, that, that there's not going to, in four years, there's not going to be the John Boehner yeah. return of styrofoam initiative in the Congress, right? Like yeah. the second the Republicans <laughs> took the house back over, they were like, screw this paper lunchware. Like we're bringing back yeah. styrofoam, like these totally stupid nonsensical measures. Um, and I think there's fear of that, that if there's the next Republican president or a Republican Congress, that none of this stuff will get funded. Um, uh, and, and our leadership, both economic, financial, uh, in terms of diplomacy and the ability to put our resources behind uh, trying to smooth over exactly those issues you raise, that there's going to be great inequality in how we have to approach and address climate change in terms of who's impacted, in terms of, you know, if your population is more poor, you're more vulnerable to, you know, mass climate uh, refugee potential, um, that that affects all of us richer places because people, you know, migrate to those places. We know this is coming. We have to address it. And it's like so multi-layered in every different way um, that we need to be there mobilizing everyone in the right directions, I think. Yeah. Um, and if we can do that somewhat more consistently than we have, and we really have not because of all of our domestic political stuff, yeah. uh, I think it will help provide consistency in how everyone engages it. Because there's benefit to everyone in being in this. Everybody is going to have different things they're worried about whether it be my island is sinking into the ocean or, you know, I no longer can produce energy for my country and we can help mitigate all of those things. Um, so everybody needs something different, but it's really complex to pull everybody in on that basis. Um, and I think even Russia and China will want to be in there if they think it's going to be necessary and worthwhile. And right now they just don't believe that that's true. Let me just jump off one point that Molly made around um, kind of the economics of clean energy. Yeah. You know, I do think um, the the good thing now is that it used to be the the less developed countries would say, well, I can't um, move towards cleaner energy because you all got rich on dirty energy. I'm going to get rich on dirty energy. And then eventually when I'm rich, then maybe we can talk about going to these other cleaner energy sources. But um, but the economics of that have shifted in a pretty significant way. And I think the fact that um, there, you know, that India is now at least talking about goals, which it hadn't before. And then, um, you know, other, other big countries, Russia and China, we've discussed at length, but other big countries that have never acknowledged that they were even going to go in this direction before are now engaging in that conversation is really good and means that they see a path to economic development without, without relying on traditional energy sources. They see that they can succeed as long as they, um, you know, invest in these in these cleaner energy sources, and um, and a lot of the richer countries are willing to put some money into them getting there, um, and and then that can be sustainable. And I think you know that for so long was the the full stop, right? Like we can't develop um, unless we use dirty dirty energy sources. And now there is a path to development and to uh, increasing your wealth as a country, um, relying more on these cleaner ones. And so I, I do think that's progress, even though obviously we have a lot left to do. Yeah. Okay. This is one of the best discussions I've had lately about climate change. And I'm so glad we had the catalyst of this summit to kick it off. And, but now I want to bring it home to domestic politics, Lene, because, uh, obviously there, there are, there's a lot riding on the durability of the solutions that the United States is able to offer, right? Not only, 
you know, materially in terms of actually reducing emissions and, and, and meeting our goals, right? For example, this EPA rule, it's, it's not going through Congress. So how, how essentially overturnable is it by the next president who might happen to be a Republican? And, you know, secondarily, there's a lot writing on sort of Biden's reputation and his ability to bring other world leaders along with him and convince them that, you know, we're going to be, we're going to do what we say we're going to do. You know, the United States is going to do what I say we're going to do. And, and, you know, we just lived through four years of Trump who pulled out of the climate accords. He, you know, pulled out of the Iran deal, basically screwed a lot of shit up that, you know, that everybody was counting on us to make, stay a part of. So how do you expect, uh, the moves on new emission regulations to play out here at home? Um, and, and, and how, how do you read this? I mean, I think you're right about really everything that involves executive action, right? We see such a, um, a zigzag yeah. back and forth between, <laughs> you know, we, we go one direction for four years um, and then all of a sudden Betsy DeVos is in charge and then we're going to cancel all student loans and then the for-profits get to take over the Department of Education. I mean, we see this on so many different issues and and it's what makes it really hard that Congress has been so um, at loggerheads because the way to get lasting change is to pass laws. And we haven't really been doing that, right? Um, But we're about to. And I really think that we're about to get this deal across the finish line. Um, It has uh, more than a half a trillion dollars in it for uh, climate. That's absolutely game-changing. And if insurrectionist Kevin McCarthy is speaker, um, you know, after the November elections, he can't do anything about that. He can't take it back. (laughs) He can't say, just kidding, we're not going to have that investment anymore. And so some of the executive actions um, are going to be at risk of um, being overturned as they always are. Uh, But if we get this bill passed, it will be huge. And there is nothing the insurrectionist party can do about that. It will it will be in law. It will be um, implemented before they ever get back into power, and they're going to be stuck with it. I kind of want to title this uh, this roundup. There's nothing the insurrectionist party can do about it. <laughs> 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 okay, let's move on to China. There are a bunch of pieces of news around China that I want to dive into. We just talked about some, but I want to start with their digital currency. Um, So most crypto, like Bitcoin, exists outside of traditional financial systems uh, and isn't treated like cash issued by governments. But China created a digital yuan in April. It's controlled by China's central bank, which which issues uh, the electronic money. It also gives China new tools to monitor how money is changing hands and doesn't have the anonymity that is associated with other forms of crypto. Reuters reported on Wednesday that 140 million people have opened wallets, that's what they're called, uh, for digital yuan and has spent the equivalent of $9.7 billion. So far, nearly 1.6 million merchants in China are accepting digital payments for things like utilities, transportation, retail, and catering. 
And this is a subject that we're going to keep returning to on this podcast. It's something I'm very, very focused on. Um, But CBDCs in general, and that stands for central bank digital currencies, are going to be a very important political issue. Um, And and I think the, the controversy over them is only just beginning to start. So Molly, I want to start with you. How are you thinking about the move of governments into the crypto space what are you seeing as the potential dangers to a country like China getting even more information about its citizens? And what do you make of the, basically the Fed seems to have been kicking the can down the road on the white paper that it has promised on uh, on the US potentially developing its own central bank digital currency. I know there's a lot in there, but have at it. Yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm a big crypto skeptic. Uh, in many, many, many respects. But I think, like, primarily, I find the entire cryptocurrency space a pretty troubling one. And I've heard all the arguments about why it's good and why it can help, uh, you know, dissidents and why it can help, you know, people doing good things. Um, but I think that, you know, the thing that that I always come back to that's kind of troubling is, you know, the, the question underlying who's responsible for the value of your currency, right, is kind of who's responsible for the value of your money or meaning the value of your labor or your input into an economic system and what is your worth in a global market. And, you know, Bitcoin has found, Bitcoin in particular has found a lot of advocates uh, or at least found a lot of people willing to hold up and wave around success stories from really crap economies where currencies plummet constantly, uh, you know, places like Venezuela and Nicaragua, um, uh, Afghanistan, Um, and pointed out the benefit to people of being able to earn money and spend money in a currency that isn't linked to their government's shitty policy that's going to devalue 7,000 times and leave them penniless. Uh, And I get that, and I'm I'm sympathetic to it. But this question of, you know, who's who's responsible for the value of your labor and your worth in a global economy is one we really need to think about a lot more deeply. And while the sort of anarchist, you know, crypto-liberal or libertarian types um, we'll we'll sit there and say, you know, why should the U.S. you know why should why should your money be linked to a global imperialist warmongering government or whatever crap I've had to listen to a zillion times, um, uh, and, and like try to convince you that some currency controlled by a group of dude bros and some shadowy possibly imaginary billionaire guy is better and stronger for you. Um, there's just so many things there that I have a lot of qualms about, right? Especially the part where mm-hmm. dude bros are responsible for the value of your money. But um, <laughs> when it comes to China specifically <laughs> and, and sort of the idea of central bank digital currency, uh, I think you nailed a lot of it in your intro, Ron, which is this isn't about, you know, China thinks Bitcoin is cool or a way to make money and they want to have one. It's about China's economic dominance. It's about the ease of flow of Chinese money outward uh, to, to increase influence in, in other markets uh, in ways that are less transparent to us. Um, it is about undermining the dollar, which is a really big goal of Russia and China um, in terms of American power in the world. Um, and it's about surveillance, like more than anything else, like absolutely 100% surveillance on everything everyone is doing all the time and what that means and the data is feeding into a big giant uh, you know, like a, a lottery spinner thing that is monitoring everyone in China. Um, so I think all of those things leave me with a not great sense about China's foray into digital currency. And I know all the digital currency advocates will be like, you don't get it. It's so great. It's so wonderful. This is the future. Um, 
I have a lot of qualms about the entire area of cryptocurrency uh, and what it is and how it works. Um, and I think in particular, when you link that to disruptive state powers, so it's not like Estonia trying to make a digital currency where we all know Estonia is really into the E stuff and they're really into digital things and they're really into like showing Estonia's digital uh, clout in the world. This is about China. <laughs> so I, yeah. I just have so many qualms about where this is going. And I don't, I don't think anybody has good answers to it or we would have seen better stuff from our own governments about it. And I think it's again, one of these powers where it's like, nobody really wants to tell you how bad it's going to be because they might want one too, right? So like, we're not going to say China's is bad if we're also thinking about one uh, for the same reasons, right? And it's just like, so I don't know. I, I hate this whole realm of things. I, I like flinch visibly when the word blockchain is used anywhere near me. And I know all the younger, cooler, like techno libertarian types think I'm like a stuffy old Luddite because of that. Um, but I really just think they ignore the bad parts of all of this. Like I understand the good messages. I understand the case studies where like Bitcoin has helped fund one tiny revolution somewhere or something and where it can be sort of an econ a tool of economic uh, stability and freedom for some people. I get that. I do. Um, but this thing where we're separating money and the value of our labor and our economic cloud in the world from transparency and responsibility and good governance will blow up in our faces, no matter what country we are that's trying to do that. Um, and I just think no one's really looking at this whole realm of things in the way that uh, in the way that we need to. Sorry for a long answer. Yeah, that that was that was great, and and you know I, I just want to plant this flag here. In in coming episodes, we we've been thinking very thoughtfully about how to sort of begin to unpack the politics of all this because it's kind of a you know it's a technically complex subject, but it's really important, and it's only going to get more important. Um, and at some point, I'm going to. I'm going to make the case that Bitcoin sets, you know, is is sort of sits outside the rest of the, you know, very problematic crypto uh, space. But that's a conversation for another time. Lene, what I wonder from from where you're sitting is what these conversations are looking like in Congress. Um, I know there's been some, you know, I know that you know the, there are various regulatory authorities that are now sort of fighting for control. We don't know anything from the Fed yet about its position on creating its own, you know, the digital dollar, right? Um, and I wonder, you know, how sophisticated are the conversations happening in Congress? And and what can you tell us about, you know, how, how that debate might play out? Because obviously, the United States is not China. We have a very strong, um, we have a very strong sort of privacy ethic here. And 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 obviously one of the primary concerns with a with a state controlled digital money has a lot to do with its ability, you know, the, the government's ability to surveil all of your economic activity immediately without sort of the cooperation of an inter, of a of a third party like a bank, without having to go and ask for someone's financial data and have a good reason to get it, they would have immediate access to it. They could also do things like turn off your money or expire your money if this was something that the federal government controlled. So I wonder. You know, how are the conversations shaping up in Congress around this? Well, I, I think it's interesting that you say that we have a really strong privacy ethic. I'm not sure I agree with that statement. Oh, okay. If you, if okay. You see maybe how that's we, me projecting. You know, um, <laughs> maybe we, we don't like the 
government to have our information, but we're fine yeah. for private companies to have it because we really like to be Instagrammed by the jumpsuit that we knew we didn't know we needed. Good point. Um, and I will say specifically, I have that jumpsuit and it was an excellent choice. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think we think about like the government knowing everything about me versus, you know, the technology companies knowing everything about me and listening in to my phone calls. And, you know, now I'm going to go on Instagram after this and be served another jumpsuit. I'm positive. Um, and I'll probably buy that one too. Uh, they, <laughs> I think we think about those two things differently. And I'll, I'll give you an example, you know, Joe Manchin, um, has pushed back in this current Build Back Better bill on this. Um, uh, one of the money makers that the Democrats were going to use to pay for it was additional enforcement of people who are evading taxes. So the Republicans don't like this because they don't want to give money to the IRS because they don't like the IRS. But it's very popular because, you know, people evading taxes is unfair and dumb. And if we can um, get additional enforcement money, we can make a whole bunch of money and make sure people pay the taxes that are owed. Um, but Joe Manchin was very skeptical of that because part of that, to your point, um, means that the government would have more access to what's going on in people's bank accounts. Well, Joe Manchin doesn't like that. And I'm sure the Republicans don't like that either. Um, so we do kind of hit this hard wall when we're talking about giving more information to the U.S. government, which I think... Um, will make, you know, things like this play out very differently um, if the government is is doing some kind of cryptocurrency versus, you know, the the dude bros in, in Silicon Valley, who we seem to be completely fine with knowing every single thing about us. Um, but the, the thing that I think is actually most revolutionary about this that Molly didn't mention um, is the idea that um, having China have its own cryptocurrency gets around economic sanctions. Oh. And when we talk about what, you know, the ways that we wield power in the world, we have military power, we go in and invade countries, but we try not to do that all the time. Um, so what we do before we do that is economic sanctions to try to get them to do what we want. And if China's running around with its own thing that doesn't it have any attachment to the dollar, doesn't have any attachment to um, anyone else in the world, um, my understanding is that they can go give North Korea a bunch of money to uh, build a nuclear weapon or, you know, work with other bad actors to do bad things without us having any idea, without us having any influence. And it really you know, Molly would know more about this than me, but it seems to me undercuts a major tool that we use um, to try to avoid military engagement with some of these bad actor countries. And I, I don't know how that plays out, but that scares the heck out of me. Molly? Yeah, I, I really agree on that. And I think it's this point about the ease of, of China getting its money into the world. Right now, China and Russia are, you know, and they've set up all sorts of shell companies in other places and things they do partners with and banks they can move money through. But it's very complex to move wealth from closed systems. And Russia and China are still extremely closed systems. And if you want to do business there, you know, you have to move your own stuff entirely internal and kind of wall it off from all the rest of your business. And it's very complex. And especially now that Hong Kong is sort of gone and really screwed up, it's even harder to do business in China. Um, and if you, the, the more of those barriers that you dissolve, um, the more all of these like, okay, you really shouldn't work in China if they're using Uyghur slave labor 
uh, restrictions that people are trying to impose primarily from civil society right now uh, on companies, those become meaningless because no one can see it, right? So if you're moving in money in and out and these digital things, it's not monitored, it's not really tracked, nobody really knows what you're doing in China, nobody cares what you're doing in China. Um, all of those attempts to have people only participate in these closed, coercive financial systems in ways that are not so yucky become, you know, much more yucky. Uh, and, and all of those attempts to bring transparency and, and some, uh, you know, respect for human rights, uh, some respect for, for other issues uh, just become silly. Um, so I think it's an absolutely good point, the thing about sanctions, which is the, you know, I'm not... Sanctions are important. I think we need a better toolkit of how we deal with these places, but we cannot get rid of sanctions anytime soon. Um, and the ability of, of countries, uh, state companies, you know, all these quasi billionaire oligarch type things that are kind of state, kind of not state actors in all of these places, uh, the ability of them to move money around and through sanctions regimes um, will become much easier. And it's a really big point because it takes away another thing where we can actually restrict uh, and make inconvenient for them the bad behavior that they do. Um, uh, and so I think that's a, it's a big reason China's, China's trying to do this. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a really good point. Yeah, Lene, I hadn't even been thinking about the sanctions angle. This is, look, this is this is one of a handful of stories I wanted to get to on China, and and like we don't we just don't have time for the rest of them. We're going to be coming back to this um, a lot, a lot more. Is there anything else on this subject that people should be thinking about before we before we move on to our look aheads? Well, I would just point out, Ron, in based, you know, sort of around the information you used in your let's why we're, why we're talking about this right now discussion. Yeah. Um, is all the other things we didn't really get to, uh, why Yahoo is leaving, why all these other technologies companies have left China, um, is because everything that China is doing is about surveillance, control, and behavioral engineering in its own society and in us, even if we're not aware of it, and how they can start getting around those barriers. Um, and the acquisition of data for all of this AI that they're training and building. Um, so there's a lot of different layers to this. And when you add in money, so as Lene said, like everything you're doing, like every time you buy a piece of gum or cigarettes or, you know, takeout food, when all of that data is kind of added into everything else much more easily, um, uh, the total surveillance of your life is uh, uh, more complete. Um, and what that then means especially in the hands of authoritarian power, uh, is really troubling. So I think there's a huge, a huge, you know, subject of a list of subjects to go through in this regard, but everybody needs to start thinking of everything as surveillance <laughs> and go from yeah. there, essentially. Yeah. I mean, speaking of total surveillance of your life, let's also just remind everybody that Facebook is creating its own digital currency. And let's leave that segment there. Now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what we're watching. Uh, Lene, what do you have for us? I've got two things this week. One is about elections and one is about Congress. So uh, on the Congress front, um, we are now going to see some really fast movement on these bills because um, you know the infrastructure bill has been sitting. The reconciliation bill has been under the sausage-making negotiation uh, that we've talked about. And now everybody got freaked out by the Virginia elections and are like, oh, we need to wrap this up. So Nancy Pelosi just announced that they're going to take a vote tonight 
in the House on the reconciliation bill, the Democratic only bill, and then tomorrow morning on the infrastructure bill. And then that will kick it to the Senate. It won't be done. But um, the thing I'm watching there is that um, this this big framework that they put out, they had pre-negotiated with Cinema and Mansion because, as everybody knows that listens to this podcast, uh, both of them have veto power over this, and as does every senator. But they're the two that seem willing to to wield it. And uh, Joe Manchin doesn't like paid leave. He doesn't think we should do it through this bill. He maybe doesn't even think it's a federal government responsibility. Um, but Nancy Pelosi was really pissed that it wasn't in the framework. And so of all the things that got dropped, the one thing that the House just insisted on adding back in was four weeks of paid leave. And Joe Manchin has said he won't support it. So we are going to, we're about to see a showdown between Nancy Pelosi um, and Kirsten Gillibrand. This is her baby in the Senate. And she and Joe Manchin are going to basically do a UFC fight over four weeks of pay leave in this bill. So uh, coming soon to a theater near you, um, we're going to see like a battle of the senators between Kirsten Gillibrand and Joe wow. Manchin, who will get into fisticuffs about whether this remains in the bill. Wow. The second piece is, is about the elections that happened in you know, there's been all this talk about critical race theory in schools and Glenn Youngkin won because he won with, you know, on the backs of these concerns about schools and parents and all of, all of the, you know, kind of rigmarole around it. Um, I will point out that a bunch of the crazy anti-critical race theory folks um, ran for school board. They ran for school board in Connecticut, in Wisconsin, in Minnesota, in Colorado, in Iowa. They all lost. And nobody's talking about that. Nobody's talking about the fact that they tried to do this major revolution and take out all these school board members. And they spent a huge amount of money trying to oust folks over critical race theory and they lost. So just as you're thinking about, you know, moving forward, Republicans think that this is their thing, that they're going to win the midterms on. I'm like, it didn't work this time. I think Glenn Youngkin was about a lot of other things, but look at those school board races. You lost in all of those places that you were, um, you know, going to come and uh, just say this, this was our, our major victory. You launched a huge attack and it just completely fell flat. And so I think um, if yeah. it hadn't, we would have seen 80,000 press stories about it, but it fell flat. And so no one's talking about it. So go and look up uh, some uh, Ballotpedia um, information on that because that is the missed story of the election this week. That's a really good one. Um, I think the I think the midterms are much more likely to be about the economy than they are about uh, critical race theory. That's but, right. Um, I'm watching this report by um, by Brandy Zadrozny at NBC. Fantastic, fantastic reporter uh, who focuses on misinformation. And this report is that healthcare workers and public health experts are anticipating a flood of anti-vaccine propaganda, a new flood of anti-vaccine propaganda as the FDA and CDC get ready to roll out vaccines for children as young as five years old. So buckle up because it's, you know, it's going to get bad again. Uh, and that's definitely going to be a, a, a major political issue. Molly, what are you watching? I maybe have two, but the first one is definitely... One I already kind of flagged, but that's what are Russia and China doing, which I really don't think we're focusing on micro pieces of it. Like China's doing this with Taiwan, China's doing this with currency, China's doing this in the South China Sea. But there's like this bigger strategy piece that we're just not 
wrapping our heads around enough. Same with Russia. And I think the sequencing with which they're doing things kind of in tandem and and the, the greater collaboration between the two uh, really deserves more of our attention. And it, it's really not, we're really not getting it. The other one I would say is it's this, what the hell are we doing? And by that, I mean, all of us, the allies, as we like to call ourselves, um, all of us are sort of farting around navel gazing on a bunch of bullshit, uh, whether it be France and the UK, literally in fisticuffs. And they're like, you know, uh, celebrity claymation death match with each other on everything on fishing rights on submarines on you know brexit was stupid no brexit was great you know what the hell are we doing like why are we wasting time on all of this like how much diplomatic time has been wasted with what minute was macron called versus you know whatever minute something happened in australia and like everybody's hurt feelings instead of confronting all of these challenges that face us like can we just put it down guys um, and I think underneath that is then um, there is a very cold winter coming in Europe. And by that, I mean a significant mm. energy crisis in a lot of different ways uh, linked to Nord Stream 2, linked to what Russia is doing to manipulate markets, linked to how Russia is screwing everyone over in renegotiating gas contracts linked to how we allowed that to happen and are now trying to inject ourselves in solutions by making everybody buy more gas, which is like, okay, what? <laughs> um, and I think there's just a huge energy story that's happening here um, that could blow up our attempts to solve all of these other problems. Uh, because when people get cold and their economies get disrupted uh, and their supply chain disruptions, which there are everywhere still from COVID, um, uh, and when that disrupts school and kids going to school and all of these things that really hurt governance uh, during the pandemic, everybody gets more nationalistic and the borders get a lot harder. And those borders are still there from COVID. Like there's way more border feeling things in Europe than there were before. Uh, and that hasn't fully come down yet. And I think um, we're sort of at a point where that goes away, like where we fix it and it goes back to the before times or uh, things get harder and more divided and more nationalist because everybody feels no one's looking out for our interests but us, and we really need to to stay focused on that. Um, and there's just no sense that anybody's really devoting a lot of time to that uh, yet. And it would help if, you know, the U.S. Senate would confirm any of the gazillion Biden administration nominees to do even basic work in diplomacy. Lene, Molly, before we go to the after party, a.k.a. Politicology Plus, where can everybody find you on the Internet, Lene? I'm at Lene Erickson on Twitter. Molly? And I'm at Molly McHugh uh, on Twitter or greatpower.us is my newsletter. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.